Hey, y'all, it's Mandy. Before we talk about this week's episode, I want to say shout out to the patrons. Y'all are the reason I'm still doing this. I could do it alone, but it's so much better to run with people who share your vision, share your values, and see the importance of the work you're doing. So if you're interested in all the premium content, hearing about the questions and answers, or even being a part of our live patron chats, check out my Patreon. It's under at Mandy Capehart, or you can search for Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart and find it that way. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 65, titled Grief Head-On with Mary Potter Kenyon. Today, we are talking about the value of approaching grief head-on through creativity with author and certified grief educator Mary Potter Kenyon. Mary has written several books, including the award-winning Refined by Fire, A Journey of Grief and Grace, and Called to be Creative, A Guide to Reigniting Your Creativity. So we are digging into her personal experience with grief and how an expressive creativity gave her the tools to face loss head-on. This conversation is fast-paced and encouraging and laden with grace for the grief you're working through. As you'll hear, we know that each of us experiences loss in a unique way, so finding unique methods to move through healing is crucial. Listen in as Mary describes some of the most effective tools for healing that she has found in her years as a grief educator, and hopefully listen for one that might help you too. Well, welcome to the show, Mary. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Here on Restorative Grief, we love to bring in people who are grievers, grief professionals, and you are one that is right in the middle of that intersection with me. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So my personal story of grief is losing a mother, a husband, and an eight-year-old grandson in the space of three years. And that was 2010, 2012, 2013. And at some point I became a certified grief educator trained by um, world-renowned grief specialist, David Kessler. And I started doing workshops and I've done an annual grief retreat for six years. And so my story of grief became a story of helping others through grief as well. And I'm also an author and I have a book, Refined by Fire, which is a story of that three years loss and also an expressive writing for healing book. Find by fire is one of the most powerful visuals I can even think of when it comes to speaking of books, the other one that you wrote, uh, tell me a little bit more about this project. So my newest book that was released during the mid mid pandemic was called to be creative, a guide to reigniting your creativity. And there's a little of grief in that too, because creativity helps us through grief. And so I do touch on grief in that book as well, but that's been a fun book because I can do um, grief in my grief retreat. I incorporate creativity and in some of my workshops, I incorporate creativity as a healing tool. And so that's been a fun book. My children's book on grief, which was nine years in the making, um, and going to be several years too late for my eight-year-old daughter. She was eight when her dad died, and I looked everywhere for the book that would help her and ended up writing that book, and it will come out in 2024. You are one of a multitude of people I know who have said 
pretty much the same thing when it comes to children's resources. I looked for the child's book and I couldn't find it. So I wrote it for myself. Uh, and that's part of why I wrote my own book too. And I think that there's something so beautifully powerful when we take our own experiences and in the most vulnerable way, decide to present it for other people to take, um, to take from it, what they need, what they're looking for that might not be available to them already. Speak a little bit more about how you incorporate creativity and in the grief process and how our listeners could maybe find a little bit of movement for themselves in places where they might feel trapped or stuck, even though I don't like the word stuck, but. <laughs> so for myself, I was already a writer when my husband passed away. And so I thought when I turned to journaling, which I'd never done, I'd never done journaling before 20 or 2012. I started journaling, I thought, because I was a writer. And three months out of a lot of journaling, a lot of working my way through things, I actually wondered how people did grieve without writing or without journaling. And so I started doing a little bit of research because I'm the kind of person who really likes to research everything. I couldn't just grieve. I had to research grief. And delving into the science of grief and the science of bereavement, I came across repeated references to using writing as a healing tool and you don't have to be a writer you just the act of writing helps you through grief but also other forms of creativity painting rocks painting getting your hands dirty making christmas ornaments in honor of that person uh, you know so i looked at the science of bereavement and discovered expressive writing as a healing tool but also other forms of creativity and especially with men it's hard for me to sell them on that because they don't want to make a collage or paint rocks or there's this balking um, or a lot of people, not just men, but especially men who think they're not creative. And so I, I have to get past that natural idea of, oh, I'm not creative, so I can't do this. Well, just the act of creating, just the act of writing, just the act, and you don't have to be good at it. It doesn't have to look beautiful just the act of getting your hands into something and actively working on your grief is one of those healing tools. I think what you're describing is that engagement with something impractical and for the purpose of non, non-arrival, right? So you're absolutely correct. Creativity is such a beautiful tool to move through our grief events, but convincing someone who just wants to say, I need this to end. I want a, what are the steps? Please give me a formula. I'd like to be done feeling like this. How do you encourage them to try something that is completely outside of their wheelhouse? Because I know that probably every single griever I've ever encountered, myself included, has said journaling isn't going to do anything because what do I write? I feel sad. I feel angry. I hate this. Where are they? Why? right? What type of journaling are you talking about? And how are you drawing people into that? What you just said is exactly what I would tell them how to start. <laughs> I, I hate this. I want it to stop. I don't know how to do this. Uh, where's the handbook for widows or where's the handbook for grieving and stuff. And what you're writing might not make any sense, or it might just feel like you're whining and venting, but that's okay. You can rip it up when you're done. You don't have to save it. You don't have to keep it in this beautiful leather bound journal just the act of writing those thoughts helps get them out of your head and out of you. But at some point you want to work your way through those thoughts. So 
is there any meaning in this person's death? When I lost my grandson, was there meaning in a child's death? Well, we found meaning and I found meaning in his eight and a half years on this earth, or eight years on this earth. He affected a lot of people with his struggle through cancer and his fight and his bravery and stuff. Adults who to this day are my friends on Facebook and say, your grandson meeting him once changed my life. You know, so there was meaning in that, but I worked my way through that by journaling and um, finding something to be grateful for each day. And that's really hard to tell a new griever to um, find one thing, whether it's the soft hand touching your arm in the grocery store, somebody reaching out to you, or the smile from a stranger that day, or the fact that you saw a flower outside of your window or a bird outside of your window, start to put that in your journaling because then you get into the habit of looking for something good because when in early grief and in that darkness of grief, it's hard to find anything to be grateful for, but there is always something. And just your feet hitting the floor that morning is something to be grateful for. So pretty soon what happens is when you are doing that, you are making it a habit to find something good in something bad or in something dark, finding the light in the darkness, finding something good. And now it's just natural for me um, because I've been doing it for so many years. And you've seen gratitude journals probably or gratitude jars and write down what you're grateful for and then read it at the end of the month or something. And, and that helps us too, because, and making yourself, trying to make the best of that person that you lost, trying to be more like that. And I would write that in my journal. I want to be more like the, my grandson was. I want to be kinder. I want to be giving like he was. And so there's all these different things you can do in your journaling. And if it's, if it's just, I hate this and I want this to end and I don't know how to do this. That might be your journal entries for four or five days in a row. But by the fifth day, I bet you, I always tell people, it doesn't hurt to try journaling because it's cheap. A paper, piece of paper and pen, or if you want to use your computer, that's all it takes. And it doesn't hurt to try. And there's science behind it. They use journaling for cancer patients, for um, veterans who have PTSD. They use it in hospitals and grief support groups. And there's a science behind it that, for some reason, this helps. And we don't have to necessarily know why, but just the fact, try it. It's cheap to try. And that's, and I've had men and women who like that say, I don't think that would help me. And I, I don't know if I want to try. And I say, what's it going to hurt? Three, four days, give it four days. And then come back to me later. And they say, oh, that did help me. And I did rip it up. I didn't keep it. I don't want anybody to read those thoughts, but something about it did help me. I definitely think there is a matter of becoming honest with ourselves where we're at in the middle of our grief and often things we can't speak aloud that makes it, you know, it makes it too real to speak it aloud or even to write it. Those are the moments that we have to find a way to reckon with because that's without doing so we remain, remain in, you know, beholden to those emotions and to those experiences and those belief systems that may not serve us in healing in the direction that we want to go. So, yeah, I think that that's a really powerful thing. I want to go back to something you said about how you were able to find meaning in your loss of your grandson, because we were just, I was just talking the other day with someone about silver linings and how 
they're not an inherently bad thing, but if I were to offer someone else a, a silver lining in their grief, I am the, I am definitely in the wrong. <laughs> that is not my role. And yet we see grief professionals all the time saying, let me teach you how to find meaning in your loss. And, and I think that what you said was so powerful because finding it for yourself is what makes it meaningful. And I think that we instinctively, each of us, no one will help us. I mean, mm -hmm. we feel we're lost, but there's things that we're drawn to. And those are the things that we need to pay attention to. So whether it's creativity, whether it's writing, whether it's baking, whether it's cooking, whether it's going out and helping other people, or whether it's just, I mean, whether you need the group thing where you're in a group crying and telling people, or whether you need something one-on-one -on -one counseling. I think we, if we know ourselves we are instinctively drawn to, to something that might help us. And that's what, that's what we need to follow. And I kind of talk about that in my creativity book about our creativity too. As children, we, nobody told us to play in the dirt. We might play for hours in the dirt and, or as children, we might call love coloring or doodling or whatever it was until somebody told us that's not going to make you any money or this is worthless. We, we knew what we wanted. We knew what we loved and we were instinctively drawn to that. Well, that's the same for people who are grieving. Uh, some people know that painting rocks isn't going to help them or making a collage isn't going to help them or uh, they might be drawn to the idea of a Christmas ornament because that might be something they can see every day and um, or in honor of the person. And you know people who start scholarship funds or start some kind of fund or go out speaking to classrooms if their loss was one that they think they can help other people with. I think we all have it in us to know what those tools are. And there are tools out there that will help us. It could be the grief support group. It could be the grief retreat. It could be the one-on-one. -on -one. It could be delving into our own artistic um, interests or like I said, helping other people, but whatever it is, there are tools available. And it's kind of up to us to find it. And you're right, nobody can tell us what that tool is at. I can tell somebody that expressive writing for healing, there's a science behind, behind it. And it may or may not help them and they should try it and they could try it. But if somebody had told me 48 hours after my husband died to go write in your journal, three pages of things you're thankful for, that would not have been helpful, but that's what I instinctively did. And so now I can look back at that journal and think, wow, even 48 hours after my husband died, something in me knew that what I was thankful for would help me. And it did help me. And I can look back at those journals. I actually do keep my journals, but, but you're right. If somebody had told me to do that, that would not have been helpful. It, it neither did it help me to have somebody stand on my porch, quoting Bible verses at me. I wanted to push them off the porch, you know, so there's certain things that we have to come to that ourselves. Yes, Bible verses helped me later, but that it didn't help to have somebody stand there and quoting at me. It wouldn't have helped if somebody said, hey, you have to write down everything you're thankful for 48 hours after your husband died. You know, yeah, so we have to find that for ourselves. And we're not in a, we're in a mess in grief sometimes. And, but if we can look inside ourselves and give ourselves some solitude and get, and that's hard to say to somebody who, has a lot of children because I still had four kids at home when my husband died, but I needed solitude. I needed silence. I needed to figure out what is it that, how am I going to do this? Because we're built to withstand loss because we're going to all lose somebody. How am I going to do this? What am I going to get out of this? How am I going to 
find my way. And I tried the, the support group and that was not for me. And so I only went once or twice and tried that, but you know, we, we got to find our own tools that will help us heal. And they're out there. A really significant question. And I don't expect you to have the full answer to this, but you said something so precious and important earlier. You said, if we know ourselves, then we will know what helps us. What recommendations do you have for the person who is experiencing a grief event? And it's ringing out this secondary grief of, oh, I don't even think I know myself. How am I going to get through trying out all of these grief event support things without feeling com just completely discouraged? And I didn't know who I was outside of a, a wife. I didn't, I got married a year after high school and was a, a, a wife and a mother for 34 years when my husband died. And I did not know who I was outside of being that man's wife. And so I was like, kind of at that point was who, how do I do? And I didn't know any widows. I was 52 years old. I didn't know any widows. My mom was dead. She was the only widow I'd known. Anybody my age that I knew did not, was not a widow. So I had to figure that out. I had to, and I think what helped me the most and what I encourage people to do is to seek that solitude and that silence. And that's not easy because when you seek solitude and silence, you are facing your grief. You can't run away from it. It's there in that silence. And, but you need that. We need that um, to heal, to think, to figure it out. And journaling comes in that silence or whatever it is you choose to do in that silence. And I didn't like that. I didn't like silence because then the pain would hit. But what happens is you face the pain, you lean into it, and then it comes and it goes and it rises and goes. I know a lot of people, and I have met a lot of people in my work as a grief educator who run away from grief. And I kind of wanted to do that too. I actually knew a widow who got in an RV with her two young children and drove for a year <laughs> around the country. Wow. She homeschooled her kids. She drove for a year, but then guess what happened when she parked back in her driveway a year later, it hit the grief, the loss. She couldn't run away from it. She, she did for a year, not necessarily successfully because it hit really hard then when she came back home. So we can't run away from it if we can find that solitude and silence that our heart and our soul needs, it will be painful, but in that solitude and in that silence, that's where we're gonna find the answers. That's where we're gonna find what we instinctively need and figure out who we are. And I had nine and a half years figuring out who I was without the person that I was married to. And I found someone and got married last year but I would not have been, that would not have been good for me two years out because I still didn't know who I was. But after nine and a half years, it was a, it was a good and a wonderful and amazing and unexpected, amazing thing. But we have to figure out who we are without that person. And yeah. it's hard to say that because a lot of people don't want to be without that person, whoever they are, or they don't know who they are without that person. But, you know, we are somebody and we have our own purpose and our own passions. And if we can figure that out, it might take time, quiet, but, but we can get there. Yeah. 
I love that you've talked about solitude and silence so much because those are two of the primary things that I refer people to as well. But I want to hear from you what that looks like, because I think most people listening, if they're not familiar with what those, how accessible those concepts can be, they're picturing a week long retreat at a monastery where no one's talking, or they're picturing, I have to go on vacation alone and I have to escape from my life and pull myself completely from all noise input or sound input um, or even written input. So how accessible, this is a loaded question that like everybody listening is like, duh, we now get that it's accessible to everyone. How accessible would you call silence and solitude? What do you define those as for people? Well, I can tell you that in 2012, when my husband died, I never had solitude and silence because I was the mother of eight children. Yes. And I still, <laughs> I still had four left at home. The youngest was eight. And so I had to find that time. And for me, it was riding my bike alone. Actually, I rode mm. it to the cemetery, <laughs> but the, wow. the wind in my hair and the sun on my face and the exercise and the silence, that was one way I could stand because turning the radio off and just sitting there in silence did not work for me. I've never, I've been always failed meditation. I've always failed yoga because I don't know how to be in my head quietly. <laughs> Even my head's noisy. So, uh, and if you have a lot of children in your house or something, there, there is not much silence or solitude or getting silence is dangerous. Yes. When that many yes, children in your house. Somebody somebody's doing something. Step out on the outside as the sun rises and be in awe of that simple thing. Go out and smell the grass when some, your neighbor is mowing or when you're mowing, smell the grass. When we are grieving, we are so close to little things like that. I mean, we can appreciate those little things because we lost somebody and we get the sense of the fragility of life. And so if you can start paying attention to those little moments, that's, that might be where you find the solitude, take a walk in the woods or take a hike or um, to get, and solitude can be, I sometimes would take a walk with my daughter during the pandemic, my um, youngest daughter. And it still felt like solitude because she was quiet and she was taking her own pictures and she was paying attention to different things than I was. And I captured, and this was a girl who wouldn't talk to me at the beginning of the pandemic because she didn't want to talk about it. And she was, she'd had a hard time, I think, ever since her dad died and she was 17 at the time. And during one of our hikes, I was taking pictures of broken trees. I'm always drawn to broken people and broken trees. And she was taking pictures of flowers and stuff. But during one of the pictures I was taking I noticed later that she was there in the picture way in the background looking up at the sky as if seeing something beautiful and that picture was a picture to me of a broken tree and a broken girl and by the end of the um the end of 2020 and our hiking she was talking to me out in that quiet out in that solitude and then we started making each other tea when we come home from work and just there, if we can find that that um, broken, brokenness in other people, brokenness in ourselves, and kind of repair that. And now she and I are really close. And st but that's where we have to find it. Maybe in nature. Maybe walking out on the deck in the morning so we can watch the sunrise or something. Or give yourself fifteen minutes in the morning. Just you're going to sit there. You're going to think. Maybe you'll journal. That free expressive journaling, um, or whatever it is, if you want to read from a book or something, but just give yourself that quiet. Cause that's where the answers come. 
that idea of alone together, going on a walk, but being quiet, I imagine plays a lot into the retreat that you've designed as well, where you are not necessarily relying on one another for input or for feedback, but just acknowledgement of our shared experience and our shared grief and big emotion. And we're here in this place, allowing vulnerability to be that common thread. How many, um, how many people have come out of your grief retreat saying, this was the worst thing I've ever done. And I feel no different. And all of everything you've said was meaningless because I had to be emotional and none of it helped. Right. <laughs> and how wonderful that we can allow ourselves to cry in a room full of people because um, that's what happens when I do grief retreats or an expressive writing for healing workshop or whatever. I allow, I give everybody permission to cry. I used to think you had to stem the tears. Oh no, they're crying. Give them a Kleenex. Stop the crying. Because, <laughs> but there's so many healing properties in those tears. And so now I don't like encourage it. Cry, go, go cry. But I have Kleenex out around the room and whenever I do anything grief related. And at the beginning, I usually say everybody in this room gets it. Don't feel bad if you start crying or if you have to get up and walk away for a little while or whatever, because there's something to be said about being in a room full of people who understand or who get it, who have, everybody has experienced a loss. The loss might not be the same, but has experienced a loss. And that alone is very, gives you permission to be messy, cry, whatever it is. You just nailed the complete premise of this show by, I think even the first or second episode, I can't quite remember but even the imagery of it, there's a, it's a face feeling the rain and recognizing the science behind tears and why our body releases them and how necessary they are. And I can't tell you how many people have said the second I started crying, I felt a release. It wasn't better. Things didn't improve, but I felt a release. And I think that the opposite is true when we can't cry because there are people that cannot cry or who haven't in a long time begs the question of where do you experience relief from your pain and from your trauma, or are you just internalizing it and integrating it into personality quirks or into, you know, characteristics that you use to move through other parts of your life when really you have access to, like you said, internally knowing who you are and what you need to move forward through your loss. Mm -hmm. One of the hardest or most heartbreaking moments for me was after a one of my presentations and a woman, she had to be in her late eighties, came up and said, I've never cried. I've never been able to cry um, about a child she'd lost 60 years before because at the time you didn't talk about it. You weren't supposed to talk about it. I don't know how you were supposed to shut it off, but she said, I've never cried. And I saw, and it was just from my heart. And I said, oh, you need to. And she, I hugged her and her shoulders started shaking and she was just sobbing as if she had just lost that child right then. And here she was in her eighties and had been 60 some years. And, so, and that was heartbreaking to me, but I also felt like, Oh, good. You're crying. <laughs> good. I think this will help in some way, because if we don't let those emotions out, our body still remembers. Our body has actual cells, memory cells that hold those memories. This boggles my mind. So the person with the headaches, the person with the stomach aches, the person who like me would end up in the emergency room around March every year. I thought I was doing fine. Those people think they're doing fine if they're not talking about it and if they're not allowing themselves to feel, but their body remembers it. And so they might be having the headaches. They might be having the stomach aches. They might be. Mm -hmm. 
ending up in the emergency room because their body's holding those memories. I, I have a lot of people in my practice that I work with that are, we look for realignment, mind, body, heart, and spirit. And so when it comes to grief trapped in the body, it, there's such a, a mental and emotional block to wanting to engage that. I'm sure you've experienced it too, because it's such a, oh, it's, I mean, it's literally quite literally a visceral experience, but it is such a complicated box to unpack because those traumas are layered. There are always, there's so much anxiety and fear that goes along with grief in our body because we're not sure if it's connected to some other health concern. Mm -hmm. So how do you address that in your work with people when it comes to a manifestation physically? Because we're not doctors, we don't diagnose illness or, or prescribe medication or anything like that. But how do you help draw attention to those areas and say, ask some patient and kind questions of yourself about what could be connecting those pieces. Mm -hmm. So when I do the express the writing for healing workshops, I talk about that a lot about the body memories and the cellular memory. And it's news to most people when I talk about it. And I actually share with them a picture of me, a horrible, horrible picture of me in the emergency room. I mean, my daughter, when she saw me share it, she said, why would you share that picture? You look awful. And I said, because I was alone, because this was the fourth year in a row that I ended up in the emergency room alone in around March, which is when we found out my grandson's cancer returned. My husband died. It was, and until I figured out, I mean, I'm not going to ignore the signs of a heart attack because right. that's what I was having. And I always promise my kids because their dad died of a heart attack. I, I promise, I promise I'll go to the hospital, but to realize that I was having that physical manifestations because my body was remembering what happened in March. It's a huge relief to realize, um, okay, maybe this is going to happen around March and it didn't this year and it hasn't for a couple of years, at least that explains it for me. And so when I tell people, please do not ignore your headaches, do not ignore your stomach aches, but pay attention to when it's happening. Are you getting these migraines every April? Are you getting the um, stomach upsets every May, which is what my dad used to do. His dad died and he would have horrible stomach aches and stuff in May then that, that can help you um, realize, well, number one, you're not crazy. And number two, um, this is very real. Your body does remember these things. And, and maybe you can do more for yourself that month. Maybe you can make sure you give yourself permission to go to the gravesite, put some flowers on, mark that time in some way, do something for somebody else that month. I do random acts of kindness in my grandson's name, um, especially around his birthday or around the day that he he passed away just to actively um, use those emotions and do something with them. We can mine our pain, we can use our pain. But um, in the grief retreats, I don't um, bring that up as much as I do during the expressive writing for healing, unless somebody's telling me, well, I don't know what's wrong with me or, or worse, they're saying, well, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. I just gently suggest they find a way to share it, whether it's on paper or um, if they find a trusted person that they can talk about it because, or I can't deal with it. I've heard that too. I just can't deal with this. I'm not going to. I know somebody who says, well, I'm not going to talk about the child that I lost. I'm, you know, I'm, I just won't. It'll make me sad. 
what you're, do you have headaches? Do you have stomach aches? You know, your body still remembers yeah. still your, your heart and mind knows it, whether you are going to face it or not, it's, it's there. It was a loss and you will be healthier and happier if you deal with that loss as painful as it is. Yeah. I mean, that's the hard part when you say you don't want to express your sadness, but you are sad and you can choose to internalize it, or you can choose to become curious and very gentle and ask yourself some questions that you might never have thought uh, that you would ask before. Um, speaking of the body, I want to wrap this back up around to journaling because you had mentioned, yeah, try journaling on your computer. And I have always been very like, yes, that's great but your body is going to respond differently. If you hold a pen or a paper or a pen or a pencil in your hand and put it on paper physically, because that is also agreeing with what you're saying. Your body is saying, okay, I can express this. I can be honest about what's in my way right now. And I just think that there's something so restorative and inclusive for that whole self when you decide to write something down. Yes. And there's science behind that too. It's the actual handwriting the, yeah. from head to heart to hand that is um, helpful. Yep. But there are people who will say, well, I don't ever write. I don't even use a pencil. I don't own any paper. Yeah. It, well, it will still help you to put it on your, if you want to journal on your, um, on your laptop and then just label it mom's grocery list or something. So nobody ever sees it, but, but honestly, it's the handwriting is part of it. Mary, we could probably talk for another hour about this. So why don't we end on something, your children's book, tell us a little bit more about that. And, you know, it's coming out soon. Um, but what's the, what's the story behind it? What's it include? So when my daughter was, um, when my husband died, my daughter was eight years old and I could not find what I needed to say to her. And I, I felt like a failure sometimes just, I didn't know what to say. How do I help her through this? And it was years and years of thinking and trying to write a children's book and it just was not coming. I've never written a children's book and it just was not coming. And then one day it did and it all came at once and it came within a few hours time. And it was exactly what I would have said to her if I knew what to say, someone you love has died. And that's just how it starts. And the rest is just from the heart and um, I sent it to my daughter who lost her son and she, she started crying and she said, this is exactly what I would have read to Becca, his sister and Joe, his brother, if I had had the words to say, because it's, it's hopeful, it's acknowledging the pain in a way that is directly, because people were giving me books about leaves and soup somehow that was supposed to be about losing a, a person and I get it and maybe that works for some kids but my daughter would just shove those books away she needed to know um it was a dad who had died and this book would be for any child who had lost who has lost anybody and that will that will come out in 2024 and I don't know what the title is going to be but basically um that love doesn't die you know our relationship with that person isn't and is still there 
Yeah. There's a time when metaphor serves really well. There's this great book I have called when dinosaurs die, or I think that's the title of it that I use frequently, but there is also a time to just be direct and to be very honest. And I think especially with children, we try so hard to keep them innocent and young and protected, but the truth is grief is gives no craps about that. It is absolutely going to show up on their doorstep. And the more we can do to equip them honestly with real language and real intention toward their emotions themselves, I think the better off that generation will be coming up behind us and making things meaningful for themselves and for those around them. So Mary, thank you so much for taking time to share your story. It sounds like you have created some incredible resources for people. So I'm going to have links to all of that in the show notes and you're in Iowa. So how often is your grief retreat as for anybody that's interested in participating? Well, I've done, I'm not sure where I'm doing it this year, or even if it's okay. going to happen, COVID kind of threw a kink in the Fair. plans and we yeah. go virtual. <laughs> And so one year was virtual and that is not good for grief, but, but we still did it. And then last year we did in person again, it was small. I'm not sure where it will be or what, because I kind of am waiting for my heart to tell me that I I did it six years in a row and I expect I will be doing something this year in November, but I'm not sure exactly where or when, but look, look on my webpage website (laughs) by doing it. It'll be up there. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure it's all included. Thank you again. This was a wonderful conversation. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good, wonderful day. Thank you for listening to episode 65 of Restorative Grief. I think the enthusiasm and energy that Mary brings to this work is so valuable. Often we can feel like our time spent grieving or pursuing silence and solitude must be mild-mannered and quiet and reflective. (laughs) But who we are as individuals, knowing ourselves as we discussed, is exactly how we can choose to show up for ourselves as we practice new techniques for healing. If we're normally quite loud, then we can be loud as we grieve, but we can also be quieter. Finding what works for ourselves and leaving the rest behind is exactly what we're chasing after here on Restorative Grief. So if this is your first time listening, then welcome. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a super awesome five-star review so others who are grieving can find us too. And maybe consider sharing this episode with someone who says journaling isn't their thing because maybe it's their time to try again. If you're interested in becoming a patron, please remember there are notes for this show where you can connect with Mary, find her books, and also learn more about becoming a patron of the show. Uh, You can also leave us a voicemail. I bet you didn't know that. It'd be really interesting if somebody wants to, I don't know, leave a question or a comment and I'll find a way to work it in. I'd love to do that. (sighs) And one last thing, please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.